have the Ayatollah of Fantasy Rock and Roller with us today, Adam Rank. How are you doing, Rank? They look great in person, and I uh, just can't wait to next year where we can pack it full of 25,000. Hey, Bob, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. I didn't know it was Ball Guys Day. It was being ranked. I mean, how do you lose? This is the Dynasty Vipers Vipercast. And welcome to Nasty Vipers Vipercast. This is episode 8485. I don't keep track of that closely, but today we got a special guest with you. You've seen his work over at Illustrated. You've seen it at ESPN. You've seen him on NFL sidelines. Coming to us tonight by way of Howard University, Hall of Fame Selection Committee member, president of the Pro Football Writers Association of America, and soon to be friend of the show, Jim Trotter. How are you doing, Jim? I'm good. And How legend. And legend. Don't forget to leave out and legend. No, 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 no. We, we're not going to start that now. Nah, you the man. <laughs> so, we're, no, we're I'm great good. To have I you appreciate here. you having me. Well, we definitely needed to get you on here because Calvin couldn't make it tonight, and he's our resident Louisiana guy. And you were just down at uh, Saints Camp here. And before we get into the Saints Camp talk, you actually went out and you tried some Cajun cuisine there with some oysters. How, how'd that go? Man, um, well, you got to know the backstory first. Number one, I, I had always said I would never eat oysters. Uh, just the, the, the slimy nature of it, I just said I can't. And um, I remember one time when the late Marty Schottenheimer was alive, we were down at the senior bowl together and we were out to dinner and, and he's like, Jim, you got to try this. And I said, no, I don't eat oysters. And he's like, no, no, I'm telling you, trust me, you have to try these. And I think it's the first time someone has said no to Marty in a minute because I didn't try them. So we're out we're out this time down in Louisiana. And I guess as I get older, I figure you got to try everything once. And I wasn't ready to try raw oysters, but I said, you know, char, char grilled oysters, let me give it a try. So they gave us one to sample. And um, it had the butter and the Parmesan cheese and everything. And I was like, man, it's pretty good. So we ended up watering, you know, a half dozen of them. And now I'm, I'm good. Now, maybe I have to go to Drago's to get the good stuff every time. But for now, um, I can say I've tried and like oysters, char grilled oysters. Nice. So you're going See, back? I'm on Team Trip. Is that a thing now? Am I going back? Yeah. I mean, are you going back for to the oysters? Oh, if, if I'm at Drago's, I will. Okay. Um, but I'm I'm not gonna eat everybody's char grilled oysters. <laughs> I, I'm with you. I'm I'm on oh, Team man. Trotter here when it comes to oysters because I can't do it. I I can't. I don't know. You could butter them up. You could throw all the garlic on you want. I don't know if I could do it. I just the texture throws me off. Like you said, the slimy. The nope. Uh, no, I don't think if it's if, if it's char grilled, it doesn't have that texture, and that's why I was able to try it. So. Trust, trust me, I would not lead you wrong on this. For someone who, for uh, most of his life, uh, up until this past weekend, had refused to eat them, um, if you get the right char-grilled oysters, you'll be okay. Nice. Well, I'm going to have to take your word for that. I don't think I'm quite at that point in my career where I can take that chance yet. But uh, 
Speaking of taking chances here, we're down in Louisiana, Saints camp opening up, all kinds of buzz going around there. What did we learn this week from Saints camp? Not a lot. You know, look, the reality is I understand everyone's excited about the start of camps, but you don't really learn anything until these guys put the pads on. And the Saints were still in that ramp-up period when I was there, so uh, the pads will go on this week. Um, but what you learn just from a psychological standpoint is that they feel very good about their team. I know there's a lot of hand-wringing going on with Drew Brees retiring, with um, David uh, Anyamata suspended for the first six games with the loss of some interior defensive line. Uh-oh. We lost. Um, you, you guys there? Yeah, we got you. Yep, we got you there? You. Yep. All right. Cool. Um, but again, with, with, with some of the losses that they had either through injury or suspension, and people are worried about that, but they feel good about their club. You know, when I talked to Sean Payton, he feels very good about his wide receiver group even with Michael Thomas down, which is no slide on Michael Thomas. Uh, um, the one thing they've got to do, or the two things they have to find, really are, are defensively, they've got to figure out what that rotation is going to be like on that defensive line, and they've got to find a quarterback, a cornerback, opposite of Marshawn Lattimore. And I will say to you, don't be surprised if they end up um, one of these teams looking to deal with liner. Uh, with it's willing to go. So now, focus let me tell you, over the last two seasons, Drew Brees missed games. The Saints went eight and one in those games. So if you believe that Sean Payton and his staff know what they're doing, they're very high on both. Well, it looks like we just lost Jim there. We just lost Jim there. He'll be coming right back here in a second, but we kind of talked about the Saints there a little bit. Uh, for those just tuning in right now, uh, they got some work to do along that offensive, that defensive front here that he was just talking about touching there. I mean, yeah, he's going to miss a few games there. Um, moving along, they feel good, obviously, about what they have at the wide receiver position. They've known about Michael Thomas's injury probably for a while. They didn't go out and replace him off the get-go. They feel confident Deontay Harris, um, Traquan Smith, uh, as well as Marquez Callaway, even though Jameis Winston didn't mention him in the press earlier. Hey, Jim, how you doing? Hey, guys. I don't know if it's my connection or not. I feel bad. I'm sorry to, that I keep going in and out here. Oh, no worries. We, we 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 improvise pretty quickly on the spot here, but you're just kind of touching about some of those things at the Saints camp. You're just talking with the wide receivers. Now, we know that the Saints have probably had an idea about Michael Thomas and where he was at in his recovery. And they didn't go out and get anyone, kind of to your point about how comfortable Sean Payton felt about that wide receiver group. If he didn't feel confident in that group, they probably would have went out and got someone a little bit sooner than where we're at right now, right? Yeah, he's and he, you know, he's very intrigued with Callaway, who last year when Michael Thomas was out, um, made some plays that really caught Sean's attention. So that's one guy, if you're a fantasy player, I think that's one guy to keep an eye on that um, the Saints really like at this point. So Deontay Harris is looking for a big year. He says it's time to finally you know, make plays on the outside. Uh, but again, they feel very comfortable. And the other thing is, look, at, um, in my opinion, one of the best football players in the NFL is Alvin Kamara. And I think he's going to have another outstanding year. Um, and he's ready to take on more of a load if that's what they want. 
but I think Sean's still going to be cautious in terms of how he uses them and the workload. But just a tremendous football player. I think they're going to be okay offensively. Defensively is what we have to look for. And recently we've seen that Saints that defense improve over the last few years to this point. And then when you talk about Alvin Kamara, their in-game versus out-of-game splits with Michael Thomas, you're looking at a guy who's probably looking at 112 receptions per season with Michael Thomas out of that lineup. So, like I said, Alvin Kamara is definitely going to be wrapping himself up here. Looks like the targets are going to be coming through him. That offense is going to be driven through Alvin Kamara for the most part. Now, we've lost Jimmy here again, so What's we're going to keep on talking. We'll keep yeah, talking say, a little bit about the Saints. What do you think about that, that quarterback competition that they're having out there? Do you think uh, Taysom Hill is going to – have that same role he's had with Drew Brees and they go with uh, Winston at quarterback or how do you see that playing out? So if we follow coaches speak here, uh, I think what they had when uh, Sean Payton was talking to Lindsey Rhodes, he was talking about a few years ago when it was Bridgewater and uh, Taysom Hill, they went with Bridgewater because of everything else that Taysom Hill could do. They didn't want to lose that. And now they got Taysom Hill coming back in. So, uh, I think Taysom Hill, for me, I think he would be the better option at quarterback, but I think they believe in Jameis Winston. I think Sean Payton really believes in both these quarterbacks moving forward and what they can do for this team. I'm going to play devil's yeah, advocate with you there. The, uh... I think Jameis. Okay. Let me play devil's advocate on the quarterback position. I think that they are a more dynamic offense if Jameis Winston is starting from this standpoint. One, he can push the ball down the field. We know that. Um, but two, if you have Jameis starting, then you keep Taysom in that wild card role, meaning mm -hmm. that he can play so many different spots for that offense. You can have him at running back. You can have him as a receiver. You can also have him at quarterback if you so choose. So by utilizing him in all of those different roles, keeping a defense off balance, I think that offense becomes much more dynamic. If you start Taysom, there's no wild card with Jameis Winston. So from my standpoint, I really believe that Jameis is going to be the guy. I think he's going to have to earn it, though. But if I were laying odds right now, my, I would put the odds on Jameis ultimately being the starter. Do you lean towards um, Kamara being more productive with one versus the other or that Sean Payton is going to get that same production out of his, his guy, his star, regardless? Uh. What's the yep. question one more time? Excuse me. <laughs> um, uh, I know there's a lot of, so last year when Taysom had to step into that starting role, uh, there was a significant <laughs> downtick in production from uh, from Camara. So, uh, you know, I know a lot of people are kind of skeptical of what's going to happen. Does that knock down Camara's value? I mean, in my opinion, uh, I, I just don't see, regardless of who the quarterback is, Sean Payton going into the season with a game plan that doesn't, regardless of who's starting, heavily involve Kamara and make sure that he is having that same high production that we're used to seeing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> well said. I'm sorry, I missed that last point. Can you give it to me again? Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, so 
I know a lot of people are super skeptical of if it's going to be the same situation as last year when Taysom came in and all of a sudden you saw that giant downtick in production from Kamara um, and whether or not that's going to be affecting him and if there's a quarterback that is going to provide an opportunity for him to get more production or if Sean Payton's going to make sure that Kamara is getting his regardless of who's leading at the quarterback position. Um, I can say this to you. have they spent a little bit of time with Alvin when I was in New Orleans. He doesn't care. All he cares about is winning. So if they ask him to do more, he will do more. If they ask him to do less, that's fine. All he wants to do is win. And what he says to his quarterback is, tell me what I can do for you to help you and to ease your transition and make you more comfortable. So if you go back when Taysom started last year as well, again, I think part of what why they were successful is the defense was number one during those four weeks in the NFL in terms of points allowed. They allowed an average of only 13.3 points per game during that four-game stretch. Oh, my God. Oh, he was killing it, too. <laughs> mute. You're mute. This is a much better team with Kamara in the lineup, even if, even if Michael Thomas isn't there. Because, like we said, that offense runs through Alvin Kamara one way or the other. And Kamara, he's a, he's a team player. He's going to step up in whatever role it is and help this team win in any way that he can, whether that's with Jameis or with Taysom in the lineup. <laughs> hey, Jeff. Uh, you don't- <laughs> this is crazy. Let's do this. You gotta get some Wi-Fi, man. What's going on? You know what? I'm too close to the border. I think. Let's do this. <laughs> I'm gonna switch off and go to a landline to an Ethernet cord, and hopefully that'll help. So give me two minutes, and then I'll be right back with you. Awesome. Thank Sounds you. good. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're gonna get some technical audio difficulties there. Jim, Jim's gonna get that rectified here. We're gonna have a great conversation going forward. Tara, what do you got for us? Yeah, I was gonna ask. Um, you've been covering all of the camp news that's been going on um, through your awesome series, and I and I can't remember because I've got the memory of like a goldfish. Um, have you covered? <laughs> have you covered the Saints yet? Yeah, I went through all the battles there at the Saints camp and how I kind of see them all kind of going down. Uh, Taysom Hill versus James. We kind of talked about that a little bit here earlier on. But the one interesting battle I'm looking at, who's going to step up to fill that wide receiver one role? Traquan Smith looks like the early candidate to do so. Obviously, with Michael Thomas's injury and the Saints, we can believe they knew about this injury for some time, wanted to see if the rehab was going to take place. And then, obviously, they knew that could have been stretched into a period of time. They feel good about what they have already in place. Now, as fantasy analysts and as analysts, we might just kind of scoff at it, be like, you, you talk about Traquan Smith, Deontay Harris, Marquez Calloway, uh, my boy there, Quan Walker, uh, little Jordan Humphrey. These guys are all these guys we're talking about. Who, who's that guy to step up, right? And yeah. for me, obviously Peyton feels better about his situation than what I feel when it comes to this, but it comes down to how he feels and how this offense is going to shake down. So I think Traquan is that guy, but who's going to step up to be that next guy? They're hoping it's going to be Marquez Callaway. Jim was kind of touching that on a little bit. Uh, Deontay Harris is more of that special teams kind of guy. I don't see him factoring in. But the one guy I like is Quan uh, Baker there. I think he's the guy to keep an eye on in camp. 
He's a little bit further down. We're not going to talk about it. We haven't heard his name a whole heck of a lot. So he's a guy I'm interested in once the pads are on and they're ready to uh, ramp it up a little bit. He's a guy I'm watching there in the Saints, see if he can slide himself into a role when we talk, when we kick off here in only a, a few uh, a few days here when camps really start going. we got the, the Dallas Cowboys playing that Hall of Fame game here on Thursday. So football is officially back. Yeah, another person to keep an eye on is Jawan Johnson out of Oregon. Uh, he was pretty good in Oregon. He was, I think he's an undrafted free agent, um, but he has an opportunity, you know, with with, with Michael uh, Thompson going out, you know. Yeah, it's going to be coming down to who's going to step up right there. And I, I believe Marquez Callaway has the ability to step up. He uh, was kind of overshadowed there a little bit in his time with the Tennessee Volunteers there coming out of college, but now he's got a real good opportunity here with the Saints. And, like, he's got some speed to burn. He, he can take it to, on the outside. And if Jameis Winston wins that role, we know Jameis likes to grip it and rip it. And I think Callaway and him is going to be a good match, uh, match going forward. We all good there, Jim? You know, mute. <laughs> I do no, that at least two times that, a that, show. That does it all the time. This is like the first you guys would think this is the first time I've ever done this. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know? I called you a legend and everything. I gotta check that back, man. Oh no. See, I warned you too. <laughs> you sure did. I warned you. So I think we're good now. We're on an Ethernet core, so we shouldn't have any issues with Wi-Fi. There you go. Sounds good. <laughs> all right. So what where were we? I uh, mean, basically, we were taking the long way home here about how the Saints feel comfortable with their options there on the offensive side of the ball. I think you're touching base more on the defense, finding that second corner on the boundary, uh, getting that rotation up front there on the defensive side of the ball with the big boys there. And maybe even if Marcus Davenport, if this is going to be the year he steps up, is that something that they're hoping for? No, they're Especially with Hendrickson. When I talked to Cam Jordan about Marcus, the thing he said to me is that if he can stay healthy, he thinks he can have a special season. Cam Jordan doesn't throw around words like that um, unless he believes it. So one of the interesting things in talking to Dennis Allen, their D coordinator, is that he said, look, we know right now people think we're thin at defensive tackle. But one of the things they feel they are is potentially heavy at defensive end. And so what they will do then, which is what good coaching staffs do, is if they can stop the run on first and second down, you may see packages where they have four defensive ends on the field in passing situations, just as we saw years ago with the New York Giants. Um, and I can tell you, when you look at the talent they have there uh, at that position, it could be quite effective. So if they're able to, to stop the run, utilize four defensive ends in passing situations, and find that second cornerback opposite Marshawn Lattimore, this defense has a chance to maintain um, its top five ranking. I tend to think what's going to happen is this is a team like Tampa Bay last year that will be better later in the year than it is early in the year because it is going to take time for some of these parts to start to gel and for there to be chemistry and cohesion. It's a really good I, guess we, I think we've talked enough about the Saints here. I know you moved to a new room. Uh, Larry Fitzgerald was in the previous screenshot there. I'm in the same room. I just turned around. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's a nice room. Thank you. 360 appeal. <laughs> what's what's the latest there on Larry? Like obviously he's he's comfortable where he's at right now, but as we know, you throw a little you throw enough money at someone, they'll they'll definitely consider coming back out and playing, right? 
let me say this. Uh, I've said this before, so I'm not speaking out of turn. Larry is the ultimate businessman. So um, everybody has a price. I'm sure he has a price. He has not said that to me, but just knowing him as well as I do. Uh, the last two seasons, I think what he was, he made uh, 12, 11 or 12 million in base salary. I think if the Cardinals came close to that again, he'd be back on the field this year, but they're not going to come close to that uh, this year. So the question then becomes, you know, will he play or won't he? Perhaps if they have injuries at the wide receiver position, but they're in a position to make a run at a Super Bowl, he comes back. That's the one thing missing on his on his uh, resume. But the one thing I know about Larry from from talking to him about it is um, he's not someone who is is interested in the fanfare of, you know, these big send offs if he does retire. He always liked the way that Tim Duncan retired. If you remember, Tim Duncan played in his final game, went into the locker room, told Popovich he was done. And the next day, the team put out a release with no quotes from Tim or anyone else. Um, Larry liked that. So it would not shock me if he he essentially did the same thing. Would Larry consider playing for another team, or that's out the question? Um, I don't think you ne- I don't think you ever say never. Mm-hmm. But I would be I would be ninety nine percent shocked um, if he were to do that. I think early in his career, again, saying how he is a businessman. If you remember, early in his career, he had a contract that was so player friendly. It really compromised the team at times, and they had to redo it a couple of times. And each time they redid it, it was in his favor. And during that time, particularly the first restructure or extension, I should say, there was a point where there were some who said the Cardinals aren't going to be able to do this and they're going to have to move them. And I remember asking Larry about that and said, how comfortable would you have been? And he said, I would have been comfortable going to another team. The NFL is a business. But as he got older, and when they reached that Super Bowl and he became the face of the franchise and he developed roots in the Arizona community, um, he said it was important to him to play for one team because there were opportunities to go elsewhere if he had chosen to. And so I tend to think, and this is not from anything he has told me of late, it's just my gut feeling that either he will play for the Cardinals or he won't play for anyone else. I always get a kick out of watching uh, Larry Fitzgerald there when uh, Shane Doan was bringing him on the ice there with the Coyotes there a few times. It's always one of my favorite videos to catch. But you mentioned it being a business. Well, another guy who's a bit of a businessman is Dermonte Dawson there. And I know you guys like to exchange dollar bills and stuff. So so how does that all shake out during golf season? Um, Dermonte is a really good golfer. Um, You know, and I, I joke on social media where I post pictures of me taking his money. What I don't tell you all when I post those pictures is that he gives me anywhere from 10 to 14 strokes. So that's how good he is and how bad I am. So, um, last time we played, I had I had one of my best days ever. You know, I, I think I ended up shooting an 82. And um, so he, he didn't have a chance. But um, he, got, he got his revenge today. I mean, he put a whipping on me unlike um, anyone has put on me in a while. So... I told him when we get back from the Hall of Fame, we're gonna run it back one more time because I can't have that on 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 my on my chest uh, <laughs> for an extended. Much, huh? Yeah, he 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 put it on me today. Trust me. 
<laughs> well, those Hall of Fame ceremonies, uh, we mentioned this earlier, you're kind of one of those uh, on the selection committee there. And, you know, we got the Hall of Fame game coming up here, I think on Thursday, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Uh, you're going to be there in Canton. Uh, now, on the flip side, the fantasy football world's coming the week after to Canton. So it's kind of like everyone's world kind of collides there. And well, what what's the one thing you look most forward to when you go to Canton here for this Hall of Fame game? Honestly, it's, it's not the game. For me, it's um, the Friday night, the gold jacket ceremony. It's where the um, inductees receive their gold jackets. And what's so cool about it is that in order to receive it, what happens is all of the Hall of Famers who are present line up and make a gauntlet. And when your name is called, when one of the, the, the current year's inductees name is called, that person walks through the gauntlet of Hall of Famers up onto a stage to receive his gold jacket. Wow. And I'm just telling you, it is, it is an amazing sight. And I get goosebumps every time I attend it and watch it because um, it's just amazing. You know, the, the thing about the Hall of Fame, you know, I always thought I knew how special it was and the reverence that I have for it. But it's not until you get around these men after they're inducted that you see what it really means to them. And I tell this story that, you know, Chris Carter had to wait X number of years to get in and he was not happy about it. He felt he should have gone in earlier and I, and I agree with him. He should have gone in earlier uh, and he did on my ballot at least. But anyway, so he finally gets into the hall of fame and then that off season or, or months after, um, I have to go down to his home in Florida. I'm working on a feature for ESPN on uh, Giovanni Bernard. And Chris knows him from um, the Florida area. Chris was involved with um, Geo's, uh, I believe it was the youth, it was either youth football team, high school football team, I can't remember. But anyway, so I'm at Chris's house and he takes me back into an office, his office. And on the desk is a photo album from Hall of Fame weekend. And Chris starts talking about it. And as he's talking about it, these tears start to well in his eyes about just what that meant to him. And if it never hit home for me before, it did in that moment where I realized just what being named a Hall of Famer means to these individuals. So I try and never forget that when I'm in the room voting or going through the process um, because it, it means that much to these individuals. So we've got to talk about our football talk, but you kind of mentioned this gauntlet. Now, typically we ask this question, if you were a wrestler coming out or if you're coming out to close a game in the ninth inning, but let's change this up. Let's put a Hall of Fame twist on it. If you were coming down that gauntlet to get that gold jacket, what music are they playing for you? What's that hype music to get Jim on the stage? You know, it, it's a great question. Um, a friend of mine, put it to me before. Uh, I have a friend who owns a, a barbecue place here. His name's uh, Sean Walsh. And um, and we would always go to his place pre-pandemic to watch the UFC fights or whatever. And so one day he says to me, what song would you come out to? And I'm telling you even now, I can't think of one. I, I have no idea what it would be. Um, I think it's pretty cool. The ones that really get me are the ones that I've never heard before. Like I remember um, Anderson Silva used to come out to this version of, of um, I think it was Ain't No Sunshine, if I remember right. 
And I had never heard this version of the song and it was so damn cool, you know, um, that I wanted to go buy it. I'm like, where can I find it, you know? Um, yeah. But for me personally, I honestly don't know what it would be. And, and I'm What's not- the first one that pops in your head? Your, your favorite song? Your dad's favorite song? Your no. mom's favorite song? <laughs> no, that, it's kind of like, that's kind of like asking me, which of my children do I love most? I love them all. There you go, okay. The correct answer is both. So, um, you know, I try and say, would it be a Frankie Beverly song? But then Frankie, is, is, is he right for that moment? Um, you got, you, you, know, you got, a, yeah, you got Anita Baker. You got, I mean, it's just, there's just so many that I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm with you. Uh, We've asked yeah, this question I, a lot, and I, I still don't know what I would answer. I have no idea. Exactly. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, so sports is important to pretty much all of us growing up. Um, what sports did you play growing up, and who were, like, the guys you looked up to? Well, I grew up in Northern California. I was born in San Francisco, grew up in Northern California. And, um, you know, I played all the, the major ones except for basketball. I played uh, football, played baseball um, in high school, ran, you know, track and field. Um you know, the teams that I watched were the teams that most were the teams whose games I, I was fortunate enough to attend a few times, and that was the 49ers and the Raiders. Uh, there's no question that my teenage years, once the 49ers got good, um, when you talk about Joe Montana, Jerry Rice, but for me, the guy that I just loved was Ronnie Lott, you know, because he played football to me the way it was supposed to be played. He played it violently. Yeah. And, um, and and with an intensity that was unmistakable. So those were the guys that 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 I loved watching, you know, uh, from my region. Awesome. Yeah, Ronnie Lott, Ronnie Lott's definitely one of my favorites all the time. I'm a Raiders fan. I go back. He was a he definitely fit what the Raiders had, that aura about him when he came back in. You've heard the stories of Ronnie Lott. Not only was he a violent player, but you know the stories about him cutting off his finger to come and play and choosing that. And all it was just like a perfect fit. Like you could not help, but love the guy, no matter how you looked at it there. Absolutely. He's uh, you know, it's funny. He's so mild mannered off the field. Like when you talk to him today, you would never, you would never think that this is a guy who would just go out there and decapitate you if he could, you know, <laughs> he just, he, 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 he played the game the right way, which is what I loved. And the thing I loved, you know, um, you think about it, he played safety at USC, and then he comes to San Francisco as a rookie in a secondary with three rookies and a street free agent in Dwight Hicks, and he moves to corner, and he plays at an all-pro level at corner. That just tells you what kind of athlete he was and what kind of competitor he was. Just uh, I just I love watching the guy play. Nice. Yeah, we've seen a trend with uh, 49ers fans with Ronnie Lott's name being mentioned. So that's awesome. Oh, yeah. um, diving back into you personally, uh, you know, along this amazing journey that you've had, um, is there, tell us about a decision that you've had throughout the course of your life that changed the trajectory of your life? Of my life? Ooh. Mm, that's, that's deep. Um, you know, I'll say this to you. I think the, one of the most important decisions I made, we were half joking about it earlier, 
was where I chose to go to college. Um, I can't begin to tell you the impact that Howard University had on me. Um, you have to understand, neither of my parents graduated high school. So college was not something that was talked about a lot in my home. And in, when I was in high school, I was fortunate to have a counselor who was pushing, you know, you're going to go to college, you're going to go to college. And so my senior year, so I'm thinking I'm going to, you know, go stay in California and do something like that. My senior year, we have a black student union state convention and it's down at UCLA, which was one of the schools I wanted to go to. I wasn't going to get in because I I'd screwed up my junior year. But anyway, it was a school that I would have liked to have gone to at that time. So I go to this Black Student Union State Convention, and one of the forums that was taking place was on historically Black colleges and university. Well, I knew nothing about them. Again, my parents had never gone to college. Um, they're all, for the most part, back east or down south. I had never left California before. And one of the, one of the panelists was representing Howard University. And as I listened to this person talk, it was like, man, I want to be a part of that. And so we're in the spring, obviously, and school starting in the, the late summer. So I apply, I get accepted, but I don't have the money to go. So I spent two years at Cal State Hayward getting my general ed courses, saving up money, and then I transferred back to Howard. And right away, I knew it was the right thing for me um, to be at a university where, you know, you're not the minority and where people are invested in you and there is a nurturing atmosphere and you are made to feel that that you not only are um, going to succeed but you must succeed uh, to me that was so powerful and it's why i think you see all of us who are in the media sports media who graduated from there we always pay homage to our school our, our university because it laid the foundation for us to do what we're doing today. So I think if there was one decision in my life that was so important to what I'm doing today, uh, it was definitely, you know, being fortunate enough to attend Howard University. Oh man, I hope my daughter is listening to this. She, that's what she needs to hear. Uh, I've been trying to convince her to go to HU for a minute now, but she she's doing a junior college thing right now and she's going to transfer over to uh, she wants to go to NYU, but I'm trying to get her to go to, to HU. So you know, I'll play this back for her. Yeah, I'll say this to you. It's just, look, I went to I went to a predominantly white high school. Um, there were maybe, and I'm not exaggerating here, there may have been, I could count on both hands the number of blacks who were in my graduating class. Mm. To be in an atmosphere where people look like you have the shared experiences that you have had um, and to know that you are going to be judged simply on your abilities, your work ethic, what you put into it, and to know that these are people who want you to succeed and are going to challenge you to succeed. I mean, they're not going to give you anything. Um, my wife always laughs because I had a professor, two professors there particularly in broadcast journalism. And there was one I just, at the time, I couldn't stand, you know? And um, it was the late Lee Thornton who, you know, bless her heart, um, she, was, she was the first black female White House correspondent uh, for CBS News. And man, she was tough. She was tough. You know, I would 
think I had done something right and she would like slap me back down to earth. I would, you know, at that time tell my wife, who was in my girlfriend, man, I can't stand this woman. She just cuts you no slack. And it, it was only later that I came to appreciate exactly what she had done because she knew what was needed for me to succeed in this business. And she was going to make sure that I had it, you know, and that all of us had it. And later we became close, you know, because of it. So to be in that environment where people are invested in you to succeed is powerful, man. You're not just a number, you know, you're not just a name. They, they want you to succeed and they're going to challenge you to succeed. And so I would say to your daughter, NYU is a great school, no question. And, and I'm sure she would do well there. But there is just something about feeling at home. I felt at mm -hmm. home when I was at Howard. Wow. Man, that's some powerful stuff right there. I don't even know how to segue from or to the next question. But getting back to football, going back to camps, how does it feel having the fans back in training camp? It feels great, except... You know, it, it's, it's, how do I say this? Um, it's still not quote unquote normal. Mm. You know, um, I remember last year, um, the first two weeks, I went to SoFi Stadium for um, the opening of the stadium. The Rams played in week one. And in week two, the Chargers had their home opener there. And there were no fans at either game. And I remember telling my boss, I don't need to go to stadiums. You know, I said, if, if the fans aren't there and we don't have access to players, all we have is a Zoom call. I said, I can do a Zoom call from my house. I said, but the atmosphere just isn't the same. And, and there's no reason for us to waste the money sitting in an empty stadium. And I, I remember Aaron Donald saying it reminded him of, of, of youth football where he could hear his parents yelling from the stands, you know? Um, so to be down in New Orleans where, I don't know if you guys have been there, but for me, out of the 32 franchises in the NFL, there's just a special bond between Saints fans and their team. And there's just a vibe that I love about it. And so they had a limited number of seats for practice for fans. It was sold out and you hear them cheering and and that's how it's supposed to be we're not back to you know to where um you can fully open up everything but it's a start i just wish that everyone would get vaccinated so that we could make sure that we have uh sold out stadium excuse me sold out stadiums for the entire season because right now it looks like we're starting to slip backwards and and that's a scary proposition yeah well we, we can't we can't go back we have to keep moving forward because yeah we uh, that's just the way it is right now um this is kind of a two-part question here you've done you've been part of so many stories throughout your career uh cal uh calcom there in san diego uh we talked about sean taylor you were there to cover that there we talked about ronnie vaught being one of our favorite players sean taylor he's definitely right up there for me this is one of my favorite players of all time as well uh you're there for uh you're doing something with larry fitzgerald you've kind of touched on some other things but junior sale maybe in your interactions with him with your san diego uh tribune there 
experience there. So can you tell us what maybe one of your favorite stories is that you've had an opportunity to cover and then just kind of expand on it because you've done probably thousands of interviews, thousands of podcasts. Was there that one podcast interview that was just more special to you because of what the topic was or how near dear was to your heart? Maybe it was the HBCU kind of conversation. Uh, What were some of your favorite moments, I guess, of your career? Yeah, I'll go back. I'll start um, with the junior question. To me, no one individual um, is more responsible for where I am today as a sports journalist than junior. And I say this because he took me under his wing when I started covering the NFL and helped me understand the culture of a locker room and the culture of the NFL. I had never covered professional sports on a daily basis as a beat writer uh, prior to covering the Chargers. I had covered the NBA from afar, you know, we were down in San Diego and we would go up and we would cover the Laker home games and then we would cover the NBA finals, but I wasn't with a team every day. And so when I got um, promoted to be the Chargers rider, beat rider, I remember walking in the locker room in the off season and, um, you know, guys were going through workouts and there were only two players in the, in the locker room. And one of them happened to be Junior, who was walking away towards the training room. And he turned back and looked and saw me. And he called me over and he said, um, he goes, you're the new guy. And I said, yeah, introduced myself. And then he introduces himself as if I didn't know who Junior Seau was. But anyway, we talked for a minute and he says to me, he goes, here, take my number. If you need anything, you call me. Now, mind you, I've never met him before. And so I'm thinking, I've heard about guys having you know, um, bizarre senses of humor. And so right away, I'm thinking I'm about to be punked in some sort of way. And so I'm like, okay, is this legit? So I wait a couple of weeks, I'm not gonna call it. And something happened, I don't remember what it was. I said, let me test this and see if this guy's legit. So I call the number and I'm expecting like to get Domino's pizza or something. <laughs> and, and I get his voicemail and you know, and, he's, and he says, uh, it's junior sale, whatever, whatever. and I leave a message and he calls me back. And that's when I knew he was legit. And so it's funny, people always think that he gave me inside information on the team and this and the other. And that tells me how little they know about Junior. Junior was so protective of the team, he would never give away you know, inside information in that way. What he did is he helped me understand how to be a better beat writer. So what does that mean? So early in, in my time, covering the Chargers, they go out in free agency and they sign a cornerback to a big money deal. His name was Ryan McNeil. We get to training camp and Ryan McNeil looks awful. I mean, awful, not just bad, awful. I mean, he's consistently getting beaten and everything else. And I'm thinking, man, they just blew their money on this guy. So I'm getting to the point where I'm gonna write a story and, and talk about, did they make the wrong decision? So I go to Junior again, just, hey, what's going on here, yada, yada, yada. And Junior says to me, pump the brakes. He said, you have to understand the true professionals in this league use training camp to work on their weaknesses, not their strengths. Mm -hmm. So fast forward to the regular season, Ryan McNeil ends up leading the league in interceptions that year. So imagine if I had written a story about just how awful this guy was. And then he goes out and leads the league in interceptions. That's the kind of stuff Junior helped me with 
you know, in terms of understanding um, how the game works, how players think, those sorts of things. And so for me, I will forever be indebted to him, you know, just, just a tremendous human being. Um, and he didn't just do that for me. He did that for so many people in so many different ways. When you talk to trainers, physical therapists, other people, um, he was just a special man, special man. Um, in terms of the podcast, you know, Steve Weish and I started one last year. Um, it's going to be one and done. But if there's one guest that stands out in my mind and, you know, we had a great time, you know, we had some, we have people that we wanted to talk to, you know, whether it's Michael Vick, you know, Steph Curry, um, Soledad O'Brien, Jamal Hill, I mean, I mean, Kerry Champion. I mean, just go down the list, all the folks that were so great. Um, but the one interview that stands out in my mind was, was, believe it or not, probably the person that people would think has the least name recognition. And that was David Culley, the head coach of the Houston Texans. Mm. So why? I had never met David Culley before. I had never talked to him before, before we had him on the podcast. And when you hear his story and when you feel the emotion of him getting this opportunity so late in life, and then you hear him talk about being able to go back to his father who's in his 90 and has since passed away and sit there, get there, get home at midnight, meaning to his father's house at midnight, wake his dad up and spend two hours talking to his dad about what just transpired in terms of him being named head coach of the Texans and saying that for the first time he felt like he had made his dad proud. You know, it was just, it was so powerful, man. So for me, in terms of all the interviews we've, we've done and everybody brought something great. That one just kind of hit in my heart, you know? So I would say that that was uh, the most memorable one for me. Mm, wow. Um, you know, throughout your career, we've talked about your path, but you know, what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen in yourself from when you started versus where you are now? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I, I'm actually going to, um, for the first time, teach a journalism class, sports journalism class this fall at San Diego State. And um, I've given a lot of thought to that about how the, the industry has changed. You have to remember, when I graduated from college, there was no internet. Um, you know, cell phones were probably the size of, I was going to say a phone book, but you guys probably don't even know what phone books are. <laughs> You mean the brick one, the brick phones? You know, but, bigger uh, than that? Dude, they were huge. You know, <laughs> around with it like if they had one, you were so cool. And I guess you were. There weren't that many. But anyway, um, so much has changed in the business because when I first got into it, a lot of newspapers, including those that I worked at, were family owned. And journalism seemed to be the priority. And now what's happened is hedge funds have bought up so many newspapers and everything is about the bottom line. And there are times that I question whether or not journalism takes precedence over profit. And that, that's disappointing to me um, when you see so many talented people, and I mean really talented people, being laid off, not because 
they're not good, not because they did something wrong, but simply because the the um, media outlet didn't like its profit margins and decided to streamline and, and get rid of people and cut people and, and um, wanted to make more money. Look, I was one of those people. I've been fired one time in my life and I'll never forget it. I was in New York for the Super Bowl and I was at, in the offices at Sports Illustrated and we had been having layoffs and buyouts and all of that because they were going to have an IPO. They were taking the magazine public and email comes out and says there's going to be another round and whatnot. And then I was told, no, you're good. Nothing to worry about. So that's like first week in February. Well, March rolls around. I'm driving to the dentist. I get a call and the call is, hey, we got to let you go. Not because of performance, not because of production, but because basically you make too much money and we can hire two people for the price of one. So that was an eye opener for me. And it's something that that I tell young people now in the business is always have a plan B. Never get so comfortable that you think it can't happen to you because it can. And again, there's so many talented people that I've seen it happen to that I never would have imagined and through no fault of their own. So um, even at the NFL today, and and I, I tweeted this and I meant it from my heart, but it really bothered me that during the pandemic last season, the NFL um, required mandatory pay cuts for salaried employees and then asked uh, others who were under contract for voluntary um, pay cuts over a six month period and all for the good of, of helping the company. So you had all these people, including myself, who gave back money to try and help the company and get through the pandemic, came up with creative ways to get content distributed and produced, um, knowing that we're not in studio anymore and all these things that are going on. And then the league turns around and and signs a record TV deal and then fires 132 people. And I'm saying, wait a minute here, you know, these people were so loyal to you and why? Does an owner need another yacht? What is it? (laughs) <laughs> and and, and it, bo- it bothered me. It still bothers me to this point. So um, that's the landscape of what we're dealing with today. What I will say is that for young people, this is um, it's a scary time, but it's also an exciting time. When I came into the business, we literally had to Xerox um, copies of stories we wrote either during internships or at our school paper. And we had to then mail it to a sports editor somewhere asking for an internship or a job. Well, today, young person, you don't have to do that. You can create your own blog. You can do your own podcast, whatever it may be. And if you get traction, media companies are going to notice it. And there is an opportunity for you there to move up that way. So, so much has changed. Um, I think the lines have been blurred. There are things now that are done that when I came in, they were considered conflicts of interest and you would be fired if you did it today. That's not the case. You know, there's more leeway to do things that you could not have done in the past. So, um, again, it's 
we could sit here all night and talk about how the business has changed. There's some ways for the better and there, there are many ways for the, for the worse. And um, what I always say to young people is I'm not trying to scare you or dissuade you from coming into the business. I just want you to come in with your eyes open and to make informed decisions about what you're going to do. And as long as you make an informed decision, whatever happens, happens. But I just don't want people to think it's one thing and it's something else. Mm. Mm. Great advice. Absolutely. You know, kind of going from the industry then back to you personally, um, what's one of the biggest changes you've seen in yourself along this journey? Um, I think as you get older, and I'll speak for myself, I don't know that, that this is for everyone. For me personally, as I've gotten older, you know, I started to ask myself, what's my purpose in this? I've covered games, I've written features, I've done columns, all that. What is my purpose now in this business? And it wasn't until Colin Kaepernick took a knee that I really realized what it was. And at that time, I decided that what I wanted to do was to be able to, to present these men as three-dimensional human beings and not just as players behind a helmet. And I wanted to make sure that their stories were told as accurately as I could to reflect who they are as people and not just as players. And so that's where my career started to veer off towards social activism and, and writing about it. Or in the case of the NFL now with the lack of diversity among head coaches and, and general managers and club presidents to write about those teams things to basically give a voice to people who don't have a voice, which sounds strange when you're talking about all pro players or well-known coaches, but there are certain things that they can't say sometimes for fear of retribution. And so my thing is, as best I can, I want to give them a voice and to hold people accountable who need to be held accountable and often aren't because of who they are and the power that they have. And that's going to be me until I'm done, you know? Um, so that's been the biggest change for me is just realizing what I feel my purpose now in this business. Look, I'm, I'm closer to the finish line. I'm, I'm, I'll turn 58 this month. Um, who knows how much longer I'll be doing it, but however long I'm doing it, I'm going to try and do it, um, in a way that I, that I, when possible, um, speak for people who, who can't speak for themselves. Yeah, well said. Um, man, you're so deep, man. I can't never get to my next question, man. <laughs> it's not so, uh, no, you said some real good stuff, and my, my, my wheels are turning, so I can't even get to my next question. But, um, you know, we all know any business relationships are important. Uh, talk to us about some of the people that helped you along the way. Oh, there's so many. And, and sometimes you don't even realize it. Um, mm. The thing for me is it took me a while to get to a point where I felt, and this is gonna sound really strange, where I could trust people in this profession. You know, because when you come in as a journalist, right away you're supposed to come in with, with a heavy dose of skepticism and cynicism, you know, about what it is you're covering, because you know um, there are going to be people who lie to you, there are going to be people who try and use you, um, and so you're always supposed to have this bit of, of skepticism. 
And then when you're on a beat, many times, particularly in the NFL, where it's, it's us against them, that's how it's presented, where you feel like it is that type of battle. And so when someone from the team says something to you, you kind of wonder, okay, are they being legit here? Or is there an ulterior motive? What's going on? And so it took me a while, a good while, to say, you know what? Everyone on that other side is not out to get me. You know, everyone is not out to, um, in some way, make me look bad or lie to me or whatever. And that was a hard lesson for me because what it does at times, it puts up walls where there shouldn't be a wall. And I'm the one putting up the wall, not someone else. So once I got to the point, I think it was really when I got away from when I was no longer a beat writer, that I was able to step back and look at how I was doing it, how others do it, um, and maybe relax a little bit because I'm not beholden to every single bit of news on a team that day. Because, you know, in this business, you're a competitor. You don't want to be on a story when you're a beat writer. And that was me, man. When I, If I got beat, you know, Look, and I'm being I'm being straight here too. As a black man, we're always taught you got to be twice as good, mm-hmm. you know. So if I got beat on the story, it's like I felt like I let some folks down, you know. So there was there was, I was putting pressure on myself that didn't necessarily need to be there, but it was it was good for me in some ways, and it was bad in others. Um, but for me now, it, it's I'm better able to develop relationships because I'm at a point now where I find if you have lied to me or if you have burned me, man, I, I'm done with you. I, I'm, I'm on to the next one. I don't need you. I'm not with you every day. There are too many other folks, too many good people out there. So um, I tell journalism students all the time, if this business is about nothing else, it is first and foremost about relationships. And you have to be able to cultivate relationships to get news, you know, or to to have a meaty feature, you know, or to get people to trust you. You have to be able to cultivate relationships. And then you have all the other things, obviously, when we talk about, you know, accuracy and integrity and all of those things. I don't mean to minimize those at all, but you can have all of that. And if you can't relate to people. You have a tough time unless you're, say, an investigative reporter who sits back and works the Internet or, or you know, um, does his or her work through the court system and those sorts of things. But in terms of actually being a beat writer or even a feature writer, that sort of thing, you better be able to, to cultivate relationships with people. I love that. It's all about that cultivating that relationship, getting that inner circle of trust you know what i mean almost without where you're bringing people being being able to bring people in but also being able to get into other people's circles as well where you've built that relationship that rapport with others and being generally a good person in which people can trust you for who you are that integrity that you bring upon yourself let me i think you've done go ahead matt let me say this cultivating a relationship does not mean just writing positive things about people i want i want you people to understand that what it means is that number one if i were ever going to write something critical of a player or someone else 
I always reached out to them beforehand to say, this is what I'm writing. Is it, do you have something you want to say? Whatever, whatever. Am I missing something? Am I off base or whatever? You never want to ambush them with something bad. Now, I've had times where I've gone to them and, and they don't comment and you write the story and then they're pissed. But my response is always, I gave you an opportunity. So it's not on me. I'll tell you a true story. So like I said, Junior and I were pretty tight. So one, one off season, he signs a contract to be the highest paid defensive player in the NFL. Well, a week or two later, the salary cap goes up, jumps pretty good. And he thinks that the team pulled a fast one by signing him to an extension before the cap went up. And he could have gotten more money if he had waited, potentially. So minicamp rolls around, voluntary minicamp, and Junior doesn't show up. And all of a sudden, the team, the general manager, who was Bobby Beathard at the time, the head coach, who was Kevin Gilbride at the time, they basically start criticizing him, which was... This was, you know, man bites dog. You know, you got the team criticizing its star, local boy, all of that, saying he's selfish, yada, yada, yada. And they're doing it on the record. So I called Junior, you know, to try and get his side of this thing. Can't reach him. I call his cell phone. Can't reach him. Call his house. Can't reach him. Call people around him. Nobody's returning calls. So what do I do? I'm now in a tough spot here. Um, I've got one side who's being really critical of him, and then I got Junior who I can't reach. So I got to write the story, and I got to write what GM and the coach are saying and say, Junior, say I couldn't be reached for comment. So I do that. The next time I see Junior at training camp, it's really probably the only time in my career where I feared for my physical health for a minute because the look that he gave me you never forget it. And he's I'll never forget he said to me, if I can if I can use profanity on this show, as I as I approached his cart, he was sitting in a golf cart with Kirk Govea, his fellow linebacker. And there's a TV show at that time called Hard Copy, you know, which which was one of these supposedly hard hitting shows that got the dirt on people and this that, and the other. Yeah. So I'm walking up to the cart and he turned and looked at me and he said, Hard copy, get the fuck out of here. And I turned around and I walked away. <laughs> you had no rebuttal or nothing, huh? I, I'm not too proud to admit that. Yeah. For half the year, for half the year, up until Thanksgiving, he didn't talk to me. Long story short, after Thanksgiving, we we start doing the journalism thing again, where I can interview him and this and the other. At the end of the year, when the season is over, he calls the media down to his restaurant. Wants to clear the air, mend the fences thing. And I'll never forget, I said to him, Junior, I said, I can do many things, but one thing I can't do is read your mind. And I said, in that situation, I did everything I could to get your side of that story. I called your cell phone. I called your house. I called the people around you. Couldn't get anyone. I said, so now put yourself in my shoes and tell me what you would have done, how you would have handled it. And the thing I can say is that going forward, I never had that issue with Junior again. Never. Didn't matter how sensitive something was, he always got back to me, including 
when I learned that, that they were looking to trade him, which nobody knew. I remember breaking that story and I called him and said, I'm getting the sense here based on piecing these things together. They're looking to move you. And he got back to me that night. So you and knew then, before Junior knew? I knew. Oh, yeah, I knew before. Well, I'm not going to say I knew before Junior knew. He may have had some wind of it. But I knew before anyone else knew, because what happened, I had, people always think sometimes that, that you have these sources who give you information. What had happened, the Chargers had signed a linebacker, inside linebacker in free agency, who had started in the league, you know, all of that. And I'm saying to myself, why are they signing this guy when they have junior at this position? And so I start making calls like, what's going on here? So at that time, then I called the head coach, who was Marty Schottenheimer. And, and we had had our coming to Jesus moment previously, where we laid the ground rules of what our relationship was going to be. And I said, Marty, I said, I've pieced all this together. And the conclusion I'm drawing is that you guys are looking to move junior. And Marty says, Jim, I'm not going to lie to you. He goes, they are looking to move him, but I haven't talked to him. Oh, man. And I don't want to say anything until I talk to him. So a half hour, an hour later, whatever, Marty calls me back and says, I've spoken to him. So at that point, I knew I was good to go with the story. And then Junior called me back and I was definitely good to go with the story, which I did. And again, this goes back to relationships and trust and establishing what the, the foundation is for your working relationship and whatnot. Because Marty and I had to have one when, you know, I felt he had lied to me about something. And I told him, I said, I'm not going to say you lied to me, but I believe you deceived me. And if that's the relationship you want, I'm okay with it. But what it means is that everything I learn about this team, and I mean everything, I write it. I will come to you for, for comment on it. And you can say whatever you want, but I write it. And I ran down a handful of things that I knew about the team that had not gotten out yet. And his, I'll never forget his face. It's like his jaw dropped. And he's like, how the F did you know that? I said, it doesn't matter. I said, I know it. And I said, from now on, I write it. And so we established what the foundation was of that relationship. And those are things you have to do. It's hard sometimes, but. Um, I don't even know if that would happen today. Like you having that, that nugget of knowing that they're moving away from him and someone like a reporter or analyst or uh, a writer holds onto that information until you get the clearance from everyone you know, I don't think that's happening. I think everyone's trying to beat each other to the to the point. And, uh, you know, it, but it wasn't it wasn't just to get the clearance. It was to make sure I was accurate. OK, that I was right. So I, I in my mind, I had a pretty good sense that I was right, but I didn't have confirmation. Gotcha. So I can't go with that, something like that without confirmation. Because imagine if I'm wrong, if I write a story saying the team is looking to move Junior Sale, it's Hall of Fame linebacker, and then it doesn't happen. 
mm-hmm. I got no credibility now. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So it was just more about waiting to get confirmation. And if I had gotten beaten on the story, it would have killed me, but it would have been the right thing because I did it the right way. Right. I love that. That's you throw that all into one. That's a lot of advice, especially for young sports uh, reporters coming up. I know Tara went to sports journalism there as well, so she's heard some of this before. But you know, you kind of mentioned that it's better to be right, better to be accurate than to be first. We've heard that kind of out there many, many times, and we've seen what's happened when that does not follow through. We've seen someone try to be first and totally miss the story and what that actually does to their credibility and those relationships going forward there. So um, I just want to make sure we get you out of here on a decent time here, Jim. Um, just want to run down some of these things here. You know what I mean? Uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame Selection Committee member. 19, we won't say what year. Uh, Howard University degree in broadcast. Oh, 80, uh, 80, pro- I'm, not, I'm not hiding from it. 1986. <laughs> um, Pro Football Writers of America member, San Diego chapter of National oh, Association of Black Journalists. Formerly. Here. Formerly. Formerly. Interesting story. Formerly. Yeah, Pro Football Writers of America. I, at the time, I was um, president of the organization. Yeah. Uh, was one year in on my two-year um, tenure, and I went to NFL Network, and was told then I could no longer be a member of PFWA because I was now working for the league, which blew me away. But apparently that's in their bylaws. And I said, when were those things written? Because again, you talk about the changing landscape. Um, so that that really hurt me because I'm, I'm always fighting for access, whether I was at Sports Illustrated, ESPN, or even at the NFL Network. So to tell me that I can't be a part of the organization was, was really disappointing, but excuse me, but I just wanted to clear that up because I didn't want you to give out any wrong information. Uh, that's good. Cause I, most of my information is coming from Google here. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think if, I see it in a few of your bios there when it comes to, um, places like before, like we said, we talked about San Diego, uh, the yeah. Tribune there. We talked about Sports Illustrated, ESPN, now at the NFL media as well. Um, catching you on shows back at ESPN, quite often you were on with the NFL, uh, Sunday NFL Countdown with uh, Mortensen and those guys. Now you're with NFL media, you see uh, all with Kimmy Checks there. We talked about that was in down in uh, New Orleans. Great combination, by the way. If yeah. you didn't have a chance to catch it out there. She's not a, only are you brilliant, but Kimmy's a, super, a superstar in the making right there, too. Yeah, 25 years old. Incredible. Wow. It, it is. It really is there. And then some of the, like we talk about some of these stories, these long-form storytelling that you do. We talk about Junior Sales book. Uh, talk about the Larry Fitzgerald one possibly coming down the line there at some point. Um, some of these stories you've been on, uh, the stadium there in San Diego, the um, – Sean Taylor thing, L. Davis, when that situation all came down with the Raiders and his passing, kind of the changing of the guard there, you were one of the first ones in on that story. And then even some other things like football life and giving yourself to some other television like that, you are definitely one of the most decorated uh, people out there when it comes to sports media and especially when it comes to journalism. I'm just glad that you were able to spend some time with us tonight there, Jim. So thank you very much. No, I appreciate it. You always want to try and um, 
always say this, you know, it's, it's I think we have a responsibility to, to give back. So if you can ever talk to young people about the industry, um, you know, I try and do it. Obviously, I can't do it all the time. And um, which is why I'm really looking forward to, to teaching, because uh, I think I'm really going to enjoy that. Because the thing is, people don't realize, they, you know, they think that the students are excited about having me in class, but I get energy from them. You know, it reminds me of why I was so eager to get into the business and those sorts of things. So if I can give them information that's going to help them succeed and prepare them for what they're about to get into, man, I find that that invigorates me. So, um, so again, anytime I have a chance, you know, when the schedule permits to talk to young people about it, I try and do it. Well, and the thing I love about this show is we call it behind the grind. And when I look at this, the timeline here for you and your career, we're talking about, now correct me here if I'm wrong, 18 years there with the San Diego Union Tribune. It wasn't one of those things that just happened automatically. You mentioned that, you know, anyone can get out and get a blog or a podcast. And if the branding is done just right, they can shoot right up through the ranks. But you really did grind. You really worked your time in there beat writer before getting on to ESPN and the NFL network and stuff like that, like 18 years at a newspaper. That's something that just doesn't happen in these days. Well, I, I thought I was going to retire there and, I, and I'll get to that point how I left, but what's interesting. And again, for young people out there, you have to believe in yourself when no one else does. And, and even having said that, I think you have to be honest with yourself. So, which is something I think I'm pretty good at as it relates to the profession. Um, I can take constructive criticism and I kind of have a feel for whether or not what someone is saying to me is genuinely something that's going to help me and that I definitely need to work on or if it's or if it comes from another place. So I give you, for instance, you know, I was a broadcast major at Howard, decided my senior year I didn't want to do TV. I, I didn't want to be judged on how I looked or how I sounded. I wanted to be judged on the quality of my work. So I decided I wanted to go print, but I didn't have a lot of print experience. So we had a communications fair at Howard where, you know, media companies come in, they interview for jobs and all of that. Well, I had two offers in print. I had one from the Cleveland Plain Dealer for a six-month internship that they were telling me could become uh, a full-time job. And I had one from the Muskegon Chronicle, which is a tiny town in Michigan, right along um, Lake Michigan. And it was a full-time job, but nobody knew where it was, any of that. I chose the, the job with a Muskegon Chronicle because I knew I needed time to develop. I knew I needed, I had things I needed to work on in the, from the print side to try and get better. So I spent 10 months there, go to Tacoma, Washington for another year and a half, spend it covering preps, whatever, whatever. Then um, a guy comes up there interviewing for an editor's job, a uh, copy editor job. Part of his responsibility was reading some of our papers um, from Tacoma and, and critiquing them. Well, as he read them, he saw some of my stories and he went back to San Diego and said, hey, there's a young guy up here you might want to look at. They do. They end up offering me a job as a prep writer. So now I'm three years into my career. I'm still covering preps. And this sports editor who gave me the job after a year or so, I would look for constructive criticism. And one day I go in his office and he's an old school guy with the red pen, cigarette, you know, the flask in the desk, you know, he's from back East. And he says to me, he goes, you know, 
And I could tell he's kind of trying to find the right words. And then he basically says to me, look, you know, you're really, you're never going to be more than a journeyman in this business. And I was like, damn, you know, that really hit me hard because it was like, you know, you always want some sort of validation from your, your bosses. And here's a guy now who's responsible for my future telling me I'm never going to be anything more than a journeyman, you know? So I'm thinking I'm going to be covering preps forever. And we have a merger of the two papers there, the San Diego Union and the San Diego Tribune. They merge, become the Union Tribune. He's no longer the sports editor after the merger. Well, the new sports editor sees something in me that he didn't. And he's the one that says, we want you now to cover this and then this. And then ultimately it was, we want you to cover the Chargers. And so I say that to say, if I had listened to that sports editor, I wouldn't be where I am today. I would have let him break me. And there was another kid from Vanderbilt who came in as an intern and he had spent most of the summer working on this big youth soccer story. He takes it into the sports editor and he takes that red pen to it and everything else. And this, this young intern comes out and you could see he's crestfallen. And I said to him, don't let him determine how far you go, how high you climb. It's one person, you know, and you have to, you have to trust yourself. What I tried to take out of those conversations though, if there were certain things that he said, that I knew I needed to work on, I would work on them, but I wasn't gonna let him determine how high I was gonna fly. And I think young people need to understand that too. Along the way, writing is subjective. There's some people who like what you do and there's some who don't, and that's okay. But never let that one person stop you from getting where you wanna go. Mm. So when you talk about a grind, I covered preps for the first probably three, four, five, probably five or six years of my career. Wow. You know, and, and by the time I got to the Union Tribune and finally started to climb that ladder, after 18 years, I was saying to myself, this is where I'm going to retire. I'm good with it. You know, they treated me well and had opportunities to go other places, you know, to go to the Boston Globe or um there was another paper back east in new york area and and i ended up staying because they they treated me well and whatnot but when the sports illustrated thing came around it was like you know when you grow up in this business sports writing that was the beacon and so when there was an opportunity and they had an opening i'm just like let me throw my name in the hat and i was lucky enough to to be hired there at the same at the same time, I'm not going to lie to you, it was intimidating because, you know, these were, in my mind, the greats of the greats, um, having read that magazine. And, and I still say to this day, I can't write on the same level that many of them could. They were they were incredible. They are incredible. Um, but you just try you try it. One of the one of the lessons I learned from there was during that writing that Sean Taylor piece where one of the editors said to me, I want your voice. I don't want someone else's voice. I want your voice. And because, you know, you find yourself at times trying to mimic other people because they're so good. Yeah. But his thing was, I want your voice. And so I always try and keep that in the back of my head when I write now. 
write Jim Trotter, don't write someone else, you know? Well, there goes my backup plan. I was going to start writing like Jim Trotter. No, Jim, I really appreciate us. Like we're getting all kinds of excellent information here, advice and stuff like that. It's been, I, I want to do this again. I can sit back here and just listen to you talk. And I have no doubt that you're going to actually kill it at San Diego State University when it comes to this uh, journalism class that you're going to be running, because I, I'm just enthralled by this conversation here right now. And I can see uh, Major and Tara nodding away as well as we we're yep. talking about this, because everything's kind of resonating with each and every one of us, what you're speaking of. Um, just to kind of keep run down uh, Tara, she did a nice little solo series there, 30 Players in 30 Days. She did a little venture there where she spoke uh, by herself, her and the camera. So she had that going on. Major's about to do the same thing here with his new little podcast. And I've kind of dipped my toes in as well with the solo stuff, which is completely different. When you don't have someone to bounce conversation off of and you're trying to bounce it off yourself, it's a different ball game altogether. So uh, any uh, support that uh, our viewers can give us to those uh, things that we're doing, it's greatly appreciated. Uh, just a reminder, this is Dynasty Vipers Vipercast, episode 84, powered by Fantasy Points Media Group. If you're looking for that subscription to a fantasy-based um, website, make sure you head over to fantasypoints.com there. Uh, 21 Vipers 10 gets 10% off that subscription. You got great guys there like Adam Kaplan giving information there, so... Head over there, log in, get that subscription there. And Jim, last word over to you. No, I just appreciate you having me. I enjoyed it. Well, thank you, because I think we got more of this conversation than what you got out of the conversation, to be honest. So told you he yeah, was a legend. Told you he was a legend. And uh Major, hit have your daughter hit me up if I can answer any questions for her for how oh, come on, man. Already done. <laughs> thank you so much for that. No, no, my pleasure, man. So you all have a good night. All right, Jim. Well, appreciate that. And hopefully we can do this again here, run it back maybe a little bit later, whatever your schedule kind of allows you to do. Um, all right, we're gone. All right, we'll make it happen.